And when he started the conference, I will never forget what he said because he asked a question. And the question he asked, this was back in the year 2000, 19 years later, I ask myself the same question every year, at least once a year, and it's during our mission conference. And this is the question that he asked. I want to ask it to you this morning, and we need to consider it together. Pastor Frank Barker said this, Is your life right now, as it is, your best answer to the great commission of Christ? He asked that of me, and I ask myself for every, every year. So I'm going to ask you that question. And I think if we're honest this morning, maybe we need to say no. It's not the best answer. But we are trusting the Lord together as his people to carry us to a point where we can say, yes, this is my best answer, my life right now as it is to the great commission of Christ. My prayer today and tomorrow for you as a body of believers here at Trinity Church is that you would see that missions is the glory of God being spread among the lost of the nations and that you would understand that you've been given by God himself this privilege to join with him and his kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And then practically, what, what does that look like as you go about your everyday life? What will it look like? So that's a high task for this morning, and I don't take it lightly. Uh, so I'd ask you to consider prayerfully your gifts, your talents, your sacrifices, your bank account. And as you prayerfully consider these things, engage one another. Engage the missionaries that are here to be with you for the next few days. And may the Holy Spirit challenge the way that you look at, the way that you participate in, the way that you give toward, and the way that you pray for global missions. So let's go to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and we'll read that together. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's take a moment now and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do gather together this morning as your people. Lord, we gather as brothers and sisters of Christ. We gather so that we can declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, we gather only because you have called us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, you would take your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts, you would enlighten our minds, and you would cause us to move out with our hands and feet to serve you and to serve the people you've called us to reach with this gospel, this grace that you've extended to us. So, Father, would you come right now? And teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We need you this morning, desperately. And we commit our time to you in your word. 
through Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Now, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a preacher. But it seems to me that all of humanity at some point, at least some time in their life, has a similar experience. If I were to ask you this morning, what is one thing that every human being has in common, I'm sure that I would get many different answers. Some of those would be true, and I'm sure some of them would be false as well, because to be sure, everyone has a different story. But it seems to me as a preacher that no matter who you are, or where you come from, at some point in life, everyone questions. More specifically, everyone deals with some very significant questions of life. Questions like, who am I? Does God exist? What is truth? How do we know the difference between right and wrong? Why is there suffering in the world? Everyone deals with these major questions in different ways, but there's always a starting point. There always has to be a starting point. And Christians start with the Bible, or at least they should start with the Bible, right? But in today's age, and I believe it's very much reflected in the American culture, many people start at other places, somewhere other than the Bible. You know, you could be sitting among friends, and a question comes up, that nobody knows the answer to, and four out of five friends would go to Google to find the answer. Now, if you're sitting among teenagers, five out of five teenagers are going to go to Google, right? Or to find the answer, you might start with Alexa or Siri. So I did an experiment myself, and I asked Siri one of these major life questions. This is what I asked Siri. Siri... What is the meaning of life? Siri's response to me was this. Nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you. Now, I was a little bit unsatisfied with that, as I hope that you are as well. So, second time, I said, Siri, what is the meaning of life? This is Siri's answer the second time. To think about questions like this. Okay, still not satisfied. The third time, Siri, what is the meaning of life? This is what Siri said. Try and be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and then. Get some walking in and try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. Now, we're getting there, but I'm still not satisfied with that, and hopefully you're not either. The fourth time, Siri, what is the meaning of life? All evidence to date suggests it's chocolate. (laughs) Now, we just turned around and went the other way, right? So the fifth time, the fifth time I asked Siri, what is the meaning of life? This is what Siri said. I give up. (laughs) After five times asking, sadly, I think this is where a lot of people stop their search. And they simply give up. But they give up unsatisfied, and they stop looking. However, if the Holy Spirit shows up in the midst of the search and does what only he can do, these major questions of life are answered, and then those answers become guideposts for the Christian as they navigate through life. 
You know, when I know who I am, when I know that there is a God and I belong to this God, my meaning of life changes from cloudy with a chance of rain to I can see clearly now the rain is gone and I can see all of the obstacles in my way. Life begins to make sense. It's understandable. Now, before you think I move into a best life now sermon or a new life by Friday sermon, we want to start at our passage and begin to break it down. I'm not here to give you any advice this morning. I simply want to consider this theme that you have before you, partners in the gospel. And I want us to learn from Paul in the school of missions. This morning, we're going to look at two overall ideas, and then we'll continue tonight and tomorrow. But those two ideas are, first, who is in charge of missions? And then second, who gets to participate in missions? So this first major life question Paul addresses is possibly one of the most asked questions of all time. And that question is, who am I? Who am I? Paul tells us in verse 1 who he is, and he has no doubt whatsoever It says, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, as he begins this letter to the Christians in Rome, he writes with more detail than any other letter that we have of his in the Bible. Now, why is that? Why does he write with more detail to the Romans? Well, he's never met the Romans. He's never met the Christians that are in Rome. At this point, he's yet to go there, so naturally he wants to explain exactly who he is. He wants to introduce himself to the people because they do not know him, and he doesn't know them. You know, people introduce themselves in many different ways all the time. If I were to introduce myself to you, uh, I could tell you that I live with five women. And I have to be very careful there, because when you hear that, you might think, well, who did they bring in here to talk like this? I live with my wife and four daughters. That's what makes it clear. Uh, I'm a husband to Katie. I'm a father to four little girls. And that right there says a ton about me as a man. But I'm also a son. I'm a pastor. I'm a runner. I'm a mountain biker. But all of these things seem really, really small when comparing to know that I am the one who's been forgiven much. I'm the one who has been given much grace. You know, Paul could have introduced himself to the Romans by saying, I'm Paul, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he didn't introduce himself that way. He spoke like that in Philippians, and we'll get there later, but he didn't introduce himself this way because these things were now meaningless to him. In fact, he said they were rubbish because of his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that you never get a second chance to make a first impression, so he is crystal clear about who he is. So who is Paul? First, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He lived out Jesus' words in John chapter 12, 25, and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Paul is a servant of Christ Jesus. He's also called to be an apostle. He was sent out by the church with the authority of the church as a messenger carrying the message of hope and salvation to a lost world, specifically to the Gentiles. He's a servant. He's an apostle. But he's set apart for the gospel of God. He had one job from one master. To deliver good news of great joy. To proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. Paul clearly communicates to the Christians in Rome who he is. But then he goes on to address two more major questions that people ask all around the globe. And those two questions are, who is God? Or you could say, does God exist? And then also, what's the purpose of life? Or what is Jesus, excuse me? Who is God and who is Jesus? Let's go to verses 2 through 4. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a lot there. Paul has just described himself, and so now he goes on to describe this gospel of God that he's been set apart for. We are partners in the gospel, and Paul describes that for us. So he draws on evidence from the Old Testament, the truth of the Old Testament, and Paul is telling the Romans that God has promised the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is real. God is there. He's not silent. He has spoken to us. And we know that this is true because God reveals himself to us through his word and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he explains God's word is primarily about God's son, Jesus. The gospel, the good news of God promised by the prophets of long ago concerns Jesus. The law points to Jesus. The Psalms point to Jesus. The prophets point to Jesus. The gospel of God is the good news of Jesus breaking into our sin and our despair our fallen world, and yes, our own stone-cold hearts. The gospel is good news of great joy. It's the gift of grace extended to me and to you. Now, to illustrate this, I want to be very sensitive here because of what seems to be happening more and more in today's world. And I could probably just say the names of a few places, and you'll know what I'm talking about if I were to say, Littleton, Colorado, Columbine High. Or I could say Blacksburg, Virginia, Virginia Tech. I could say Newtown, Colorado, Sandy Hook Elementary, and and just even one year ago, this Valentine's Day, Parkland, Florida. This is just a few of the mass school shootings, the tragedies that are taking place recently. And there's no other way to explain it other than These things are tragic and evil. Well, you might remember a few years back in August of 2013, the same tragedy could have happened in Decatur, which is in Atlanta, 
right outside of Atlanta at McNair Elementary School, but it didn't happen. Let me explain to you what took place. Michael Brandon Hill was a 20-year-old male, walked into the front office of the school despite the security system that requires visitors to buzz in. He may have followed behind someone who was authorized to be in the building, but he never got past the front office. And he held two employees captive for a period of time in the office. One of those hostages was Antoinette Tuff, the school bookkeeper. She tried to convince him to put down his weapons, and she said to the gunman, uh, she said, as she tried to talk him down, he said to her that he had no reason to live because nobody loved him. And so what she said back to him was she just explained that she loved him. She said to ABC News, I didn't know much about him. I didn't know his name, but I did love him. And it was scary because I knew at that moment he was ready to take my life along with his. And if I didn't say the right thing, then we would all be dead. So in an effort to calm him down, she told him about her own troubles. She told him about her failed marriage. She told him about the struggle she had opening her own business. She says, I told him that we all have situations in our lives and that it was going to be okay if she could recover then he could recover too. And so slowly she talked Michael Hill down and she helped him surrender his guns to the police, but she did so with the help of the 911 operator that she called. And that 911 operator's name was Kendra McRae. This is what McRae said about this situation. She said, as a 911 operator, you have to have a passion and a love for people because you're talking to people that you've never met. And they're calling you because they need help. God has given me a spirit of love and compassion for people. When I heard Antoinette Tuff on the phone that day, my main concern was that she goes home to her family today. So you see, in the midst of despair, in the midst of the face of evil, God breaks in, and he makes something beautiful. And he does it with his children. His children get to participate with him. See, because Antoinette Tuff, the school bookkeeper, and Kendra McRae, the 911 operator, they're very quick to say that there is a God, and he is the real hero in this situation. He's the one that brought peace. But yet he did it through them, through his children. These two ladies have a very real sense and belief that God uses his children to bring hope to hopeless situations, to bring peace where there is no peace. And they're very quick to say that God has a plan for everyone. This is, again, what Tuff said. We all go through something, and I believe that God gives us a purpose in life. Tuff believes that she was meant to be at McNair on Tuesday, even though she had originally been scheduled to be off. She thinks she was meant to be up in the front office to encounter the gunman in that location at that time because she had been delayed from going back to her her desk. She said it was all part of God's plan for her, for the suspect, for the students at McNair. Did you hear that? God has a plan, and he gives each one of us a purpose in life. 
Paul continues in his opening statements of the letter to the Christians at Rome with an understanding of life. So the third question, what is the purpose of life? Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul has a very clear purpose of his life because it flows out of who he is and who God is. Paul's mission flows from his position. Paul's mission as an apostle to be sent out to tell the nations about Jesus Christ, that people would turn from their wicked ways, they would repent from their sins and turn to Christ and forgiveness. That's his mission. But it flows from his position, and his position is the graced one. His position is to give grace because he's been given grace. Now that's where we come in here this morning. Verse 5 begins to shed some light on who we are and our purpose in life. And I don't do this often, but I think the New Living Translation helps us to see. If Listen to the verse 5 in the New Living Translation. It says this, Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him bringing glory to his name. The Greek word there is charis, and it's translated as grace, and it should be. But the New Living Translation translates charis as privilege. Translates it as privilege. Do you hear this? God himself has graced us with the privilege of telling people everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and that they would obey him and they would give him glory. I believe this changes everything when it comes to missions. I want to submit to you this morning that when we have a clear understanding of who we are and whose we are, our involvement in global missions shrinks as a duty and it increases more and more as a privilege. Now, the missions program here at Trinity, I set in on the leadership and the missionaries last night, and I was blown away. It's incredible, the program that you have here. But I would also say that if this church is anything like the church where I come from, there are people here that are participating in missions out of duty and out of obligation because it's what God commanded us to do. What I would like to see happen and what I'm submitting to you this morning is that your have to becomes a get to and your need to becomes a joy to. God graces us with the privilege of participating with him and what he's doing around the world. Now let's think about this. What's happening around the world? Well, we've already talked about several school shootings. There's so many more. A few years back, there was a Texas church shooting closer home. There was a Charleston church shooting as well. Political leaders making decisions to snuff out the sanctity of life. We've talked about that this morning. There's poverty all around us in the United States. Uh, Today at our church, a team will be commissioned to go to Haiti to serve on a short-term trip, and they will see poverty like they've never seen before in Haiti. Cancer is always rearing its ugly head. 
Yesterday, we had a memorial service at our church for one of our ruling elders for many, many years who, who uh, passed away because of cancer. There's false world religions that are taking people's minds captive. Spiritism, we heard about in Sunday school. There's terrorism that's very real and present. We're not even scratching the surface of what's going on in the world today. You know, we look at these things and we wonder what can be done. Humanity is suffering all around the world. There's great suffering, but we want to make it right. And in America, you know, we lean more toward writing a check or rounding up our receipt at the grocery store, or go funding someone to make things right. But this is the wrong perspective. And Tim Dearborn helps us to see. This is what Tim Dearborn says. It is insufficient to proclaim that the church of God has a mission in the world. Rather, the God of mission has a church in the world. Let me say that one more time. It is insufficient to proclaim that the church of God has a mission in the world. Rather, the God of mission has a church in the, in the world. Now, if we grasp that inversion of subject and object, participation in God's mission will become a joyous, life-giving privilege. Missions is ultimately not a human response to a human need. It's the church's involvement in mission. It's, it's privileged participation, a holy privilege, in the actions of a triune God. But can that really be true? Well, you tell me. Our church supports Bill and Maylee Letchworth. They're serving the First Nation people in Moose Factory, Canada. Now, in Moose Factory, Canada... Since the beginning of the year, it has consistently been as cold as negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It was 69 degrees Fahrenheit last night, and I was just a little bit chilly. Negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit consistently. Why would anyone go to Moose Factory Canada? You know, a sense of duty to God might take them there, but it won't keep them there in the cold months. Privilege will. What about your church? Trinity supports Jeff and Sissy DeJernis. They're serving with Wycliffe Bible Translators, as you heard this morning in Sunday school, or Tom and Lucy Wright. They've been serving since 1986. Jeff and Sissy, almost 40 years since 1981. Now, why would anyone choose to live their whole career on a primitive island like Papua New Guinea where there's cannibalism? Why would you do that? A short-term trip? Sure, let's go. Let's spend a couple of weeks. But 41 years? Why would you do that? Why would anyone choose to take their vacation time, if they're working in the real world, to go on a short-term mission journey anywhere instead of going to the beach or the mountains? Duty might take you once, but it won't cause you to return year after year. Why would anyone choose to spend the time the wee hours in the morning in prayer for the sake of the nations. You get up at 4.30 or 5 to pray for the world. You might do that one Friday because God commands you to do it. But I'm submitting to you, it's your privilege to participate in what the Lord's doing. And that gets you up to persevere. Why would anyone choose to give money to invest in missionaries, money that they don't have and they're trusting God to provide for them in the future? 
instead of just buying something new for themselves. Duty gives once or twice, but privilege continues to give because it's a partnership. When we consider that God has given us a holy privilege to join him in what he's doing around the world, then we begin to live lives of grace that begin to share his love. I'll finish with this. Dearborn, again, tells about a time when he and his wife went to a refugee camp in Thailand. It was during the height of the Cambodian genocide in the late 1970s. There were over 100,000 Cambodians that fled their country to live in Thailand in a refugee camp. Before Tim and his wife Carrie left Seattle to go on this short-term trip, they were contacted by a refugee family that came from this camp. They left the camp and they were able to resettle in Seattle and the United States. But their whole family didn't make it, which is normally the case with refugees. We have a refugee family from the Congo at our church right now. There's eight of them, but the husband's still stuck in Lebanon, waiting to come. So this couple had their son that's still left over in this camp in Thailand. And they'd been separated from this 14-year-old son for over four years. But they had heard that he was possibly alive. They didn't know for sure, but they heard that he might be alive and hiding out in this refugee camp. The United Nations had officially shut down this camp because it was so overcrowded and therefore the family couldn't attempt to find their lost son that was living illegally in this camp. He was living as an abandoned orphan. Could you even imagine what that's like for him there? So the parents got in touch with Tim and his wife Carrie. They decided to send their son's name and the description and a picture of him as a little boy with them as they went on their short-term journey. So everywhere they went, Tim and his wife showed this picture of this little boy, and they asked if anyone knew the boy. So it was by God's providence, the God of mission with, with his church in the world, or the God of mission with his church in this refugee camp, by God's providence, some little children led them to a hut where the boy was hiding And this is what Tim says as he describes what happened. At that moment, we walked into one of the highest privileges of our life. What a joy to tell him that his parents and his sisters were not only alive, but they were resettled in the United States. And that this meant he too could leave the camp and join them. He had a father. He had a mother. He had a family. He had a home. He was not an orphan. He was not unwanted. He was loved. Friends, it was their duty to go to the refugee camp. It was their duty to look for the boy. It was their duty to be God's hands and feet in Thailand. But it was their privilege. Yes, it was God's grace to watch this little boy's life change by God. Trinity Church, you've been given a privilege by God himself, and this is what it looks like. There's a privilege to connect Connect with the missionaries that have come to be with you over the next few days. You have the privilege to pray. Pray for a revival among the people here and in your community. Pray for God's kingdom to be built on earth as it is in heaven. You have the privilege to give by faith of your resources so that the name of Jesus would go to the ends of the earth. You have the privilege to go. Go next door for some people in your neighborhood. But also... God might be calling some of you here to have the privilege to go to another country to tell a lost and hopeless world about the great hope that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ.
We'll continue to think on these things today and tomorrow as we continue with the Apostle Paul and the School of Missions and consider what it means to be partners in the gospel. But this morning, we have another privilege, and it's probably the most important privilege that we have as a son or a daughter of the Lord, and that is the privilege to come to the Lord's table. The Lord tells us, all you who are weary and heavy laden, to come and take the privilege of eating together as the body of Christ. Let's take time now to pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do come to you this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you have extended to us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've made us to be your own. And Father, you've extended to us the privilege to join you in what you're doing around the world. Lord, help us to open up our eyes and to see that the fields are white unto harvest. Help us to see what you're doing and to join you. And, oh God, I do want to pray as well that if there are any here who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, they don't have the privilege of experiencing you in their everyday life, Lord, I pray that you would draw them out of darkness and into your marvelous light that you would take the scales that are on their eyes and make them fall down so that they can see the beauty of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, continue to teach us this week, this weekend, about the goodness that we have in Christ. And as we come to your table, strengthen us and nourish us, we pray. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.